The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. And my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. The Gospel of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Well, there are a lot of different ways to read the Bible. I imagine, you, like most of us, you, you came up being exposed primarily to one of them. Maybe it was sitting in church and hearing a passage that would be a dozen or 15 verses like the ones that that Jim read for us. Other people, you might have grown up in a setting where you heard long stretches of the Bible read together. Maybe you studied it in a a small group. Uh, Or maybe you uh, were part of a community where people would memorize verses. I remember there was a a group of us in high school, we had these little flashcards and we would memorize these individual Bible verses. But one of the benefits of reading longer stretches of the Bible, especially at a time, is that you can catch kind of the bigger story that's being written. I mean, even if you're doing a Bible study and even if you're going fairly quickly, you're usually doing no more than maybe a chapter a week. But last year, a number of us read through the Bible in a year. And one of the things that you notice when you do that is in some places you get the same refrain over and over. So, for example, Mary and I were talking about this this week, that in the book of Judges, which is probably the most depressing book in the entire Bible, you have the same cycle repeating. God's people get into trouble. They get into trouble because they've been unfaithful to Him. They've chased after the gods of the peoples around them. They've gotten themselves conquered. They are in misery and distress, and they cry out to God, God, save us. And God sends them some really interesting characters to rescue them and to get them out of the pickle that they're in. And then they get rescued, and they thank God, and then as time goes by, they once again go after other gods. They once again disobey the good law that God has given his people. And it happens over and over. And then in the book of Judges, you get this little little commentary that shows up as this happens. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did whatever he wanted to do. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. And so as you read that, you're, you're kind of primed to say, so what we need is... A king. 
And if we have a king, then we won't have these kinds of problems, right? So you get set up right at the end of Judges. You, you know, you, then you read Ruth, which is a really uh, fun little story. And then you end up with the narratives of the monarchy, First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. And you're thinking, this is going to be great, right? We're going to get a king. And they do. Now, Samuel, of course, warns the people, this isn't necessarily such a great idea because you know what kings do? The, the kings are going to like, have standing armies and those are expensive, so you're going to get taxed and he's going to take the best of what you have and he's going to take actually the, the, your, your, your children and he's going to have them working in, in, his, in, in his palace. He's going to uh, conscript your sons. And that's only if he's just kind of a garden variety decent king. But not all of Israel's kings were garden variety decent kings. The first one, Saul, I mean, he was straight out of central casting. Good looking guy, half a head taller than everybody else. And yet, at the end of his story, we see him run through on the battlefield. So, okay, so Saul wasn't great. So maybe, maybe we just need a king who's got better character, right? So then you get David. David, we read, a man after God's own heart who wrote all these beautiful psalms. And he came up in the, in the royal household. Jonathan, Saul's son, was his good friend. And David, oh, David was a, a musician. David was an artist. David was also a mighty, mighty warrior. And he basically had this, this whole, these bands of of mercenaries that he would run around with which is a good thing because he got himself in a lot of trouble and needed these guys to help him out as they were hiding out in caves but we also know that david on the at the time of the year when kings go out to war david was not going out to war david was loitering on the roof of his house and he saw a beautiful woman who was married to someone else one of his generals and he took her, had him killed. And later on, David got the clever idea, hey, I'm going to build God a temple. I'm going to build him a house. It'll be great. God says, no. you got too much blood on your hands. Your son, he'll build it. You can design it, but your son's going to build it. And so David's son, great, David's son Solomon starts out, and he's he's uh, offered, God says, what do you want? Ask me anything and I'll give it to you. Solomon says, I want wisdom. So we have this young man who had seen the results of folly in his father's house. He asks for wisdom and it starts out fine, but then, you know, a few diplomatically necessary marriages and then a few concubines taken on and the next thing you know, he's got a house full of literally hundreds of women, most of whom are worshiping other gods, and he's allowed them to set up their own little shrines, and sure enough, he's participating as well. So we're 0 for 3, and then we get the civil war, because in addition to setting himself up with all of these concubines, Solomon had also oppressively taxed the people. So after he dies, his son has a tax revolt on his hands, his son does not handle that especially well. Then we get the nation split into the northern and the southern kingdoms. And 
just as you would think from reading Judges, all you need is a king. Now you get these stories about kings that maybe start out well, but then they don't end that way. And you think, if we could only have a good king, if we just had a good king, if we just had a king that, that loved God and loved his law, then we'd be all right. And so you get the story of King Josiah. And King Josiah does all the right things. He tears down the shrines to the false gods. He, he makes sure that the people read and hear God's, God's Word. He actually found probably the book of Deuteronomy that had been stuck in a file cabinet someplace. He finds it, he pulls it out, he realizes, my goodness, we're a mess. We need, to, we need to hear this. We need to follow this. And you think, great, finally we get a good king. And then Josiah dies due to a military misadventure with Pharaoh Necho. That's it. In fact, none of the kings in the northern kingdom ended up being at all good. A very few of the kings of the southern kingdom were all right. But no, it's a story where you want something, you're yearning for something that you're not getting. Throughout the Old Testament, the rulers, the leaders of God's people are referred to as shepherds. In fact, the end of Psalm 78, which is one of those psalms that gives you kind of the Cliff Notes version of the Old Testament, uh, up to King David, it says at the end, and God took David from tending the sheep, took him to be the shepherd of his people Israel. And you have this in, in Ezekiel 34, you have this the, the prophet denouncing the wicked shepherds, the, the kings and the, the priests who instead of feeding God's people fed on them. They're like the hired hand that Jesus talks about. He doesn't care about the sheep. It's only a, a way for him to get what he wants. And so he's more than happy to toss them to the wolves, literally. This morning, I asked my daughter Alicia to come. She's going to sing a hymn during communion, a song during communion. It's uh, from Handel's Messiah, He Shall Feed His Flock Like a Shepherd. The, the text for that comes from Isaiah chapter 40. Here's another place. Now, Isaiah chapter 40 is right in the middle of Isaiah. It's a part of Isaiah that's written to God's people as they are in exile, most likely, where all of their faithlessness, all of their bad decisions, all of their efforts to put their trust and their security in the hands of entangling diplomatic alliances have finally come to naught and they've been hauled off into exile. And God has the message for His people, Comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, She's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Isaiah goes on to say, The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted. Every mountain and hill made low. The rough places plain. The crooked straight. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all mankind together will see it for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What a word of hope. What a word of assurance to people who are under the domination of a foreign country that has hauled away so many of its best citizens to Babylon. Not only the home of one of the great 
superpowers of the age that flick Israel away like one more gnat, but a place where people are worshiping the false gods. God's people have been dragged off there, but there's hope. A voice says, cry out, and I said, what shall I cry? All men are like grass and all their glory, like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, because the breath of the Lord blows on them. And surely the people are grass, but while the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. And here's God's reminder to His people that He will come through on His promises. That He has not forgotten what He covenanted with Abraham. He's not forgotten the word of love that He gave His people on Mount Sinai. And so, you who bring good tidings to Zion go up on a high mountain You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Don't be afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. And look, the Lord Yahweh comes with power. His arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. And here comes the verse that the Arias comes from. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. And he shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. The picture is one of strength. A strong God who is going to save his people from their enemies. And it's also a word of love, a word of compassion, a word of grace from a God to His people who are deserving of no such things. They have been faithless. They have gone astray. They have failed to hold up their end of the bargain. And yet the message that God has for them is that He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. So this would have all been in the minds of the people that Jesus was talking to. When Jesus said, I'm a good shepherd, they would not have said, well, I'm not a sheep, I don't need a shepherd. They would have had in mind this picture of the leader of God's people being portrayed as a shepherd. And when Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, saying, I'm not like all those other ones, not like the bad ones, not like the wicked ones, not like the ones who just were mediocre. I'm the good shepherd. And how do you know that? Because the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He knows his sheep. His sheep know him. And the reason he says that my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. So when we gather here to worship our good shepherd, we worship the Lord Jesus Christ who gave his life up 
for the sake of his people. And who then took it up again and rules in power and in glory and with love and compassion and grace. This is the God we serve. This is the God who loves us. This is our good shepherd. Amen.